aquele nome inesquecível dos filhos da Angola. I'm Doug Storm. This is Interchange. Our show is Cuba in Africa, or what my guest today has called Castro's Worldview, Foreign Policy in a Hostile World. Our music also reflects this Cuba in Africa and the struggle for independence by African nations. Our opening song, Valodia by Santokas, released shortly after Angolan independence, is in praise of a guerrilla fighter. I'm here. Again, this is Valodia by Santokas. Some of the lyrics uh, paraphrase. Far away, I heard that name, unforgettable Angolan children, Valodia, in defense of the Angolan people. Angolan people, be vigilant that in neocolonialism, the repression is worse. Misery is a martyrdom, poverty also, and neocolonialism has no color. Down capitalism, down with imperialism, down neocolonialism, advance. Socialism. My guest today, Piero Gleesis, has spent a career uncovering the foreign policy efforts of Fidel Castro's Cuba. This is the way Cuba tells the world what it means to be Cuban and what Cuba stands for in the world. His two great investigative tomes are Conflicting Missions, Havana, Washington, and Africa, 1959-1976, and its sequel, Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and the Struggle for Southern Africa, 1976-1991, both published by the University of North Carolina Press. Piero Gleesis, welcome to Interchange. Thank you. Uh, let's pause a bit over that first song, if you don't mind. When I went looking for the lyrics, I found the Portuguese translated into Russian. And as far as I can tell, Volodya is a version of Volodya, which is a diminutive of Vladimir, um, which I thought was fascinating, really, as you talk throughout uh, m- much of your book, the the idea that uh, the Soviets and uh, Russia uh, were, not, were not as... Um, uh, uh, puppet masters uh, with Cuba, as many people suspect. The um, let me ask you also, if you don't mind, about being Italian uh, and doing this kind of research and being a foreign policy uh, expert. Uh, has it made a difference to uh, research U.S. foreign policy uh, being Italian? It made a difference in Cuba, I think. I am from southern Italy, and the culture of southern Italy is fairly similar to the culture of the Caribbean. And so I didn't have a cultural clash or anything when I started working on the Caribbean. And it was very easy for people from the Caribbean, I started with the Dominican Republic, to relate with me. So this was a huge advantage. And another advantage was the language. Being Italian, uh, Italian is fairly similar to Spanish. It was very easy for me to speak excellent Spanish. And uh, I remember the first time I met the person who became my link with the archives, the closed Cuban archives, already escaped. Riskane is off, he starts reading to me some documents, Cuban documents, uh, which had to do with Africa. And he was reading extremely fast. And he would stop every five minutes and say, do you understand? Do you understand? <laughs> and I would laugh because my point was, I am Italian. Even if by accident there were a word I'm not familiar with, it's probably very similar to Italian. So that helps. I think the fact that my Spanish obviously does not have an American accent mm-hmm. also helped. So yes, my cultural background helped very much in Cuba, I think. Mm. Well, uh, I'll, I'll make a note real quick, though. Uh, we uh, talked on the show about the recent Netflix series of uh, Leonardo Padura's um, uh, seasons in Havana, and one thing I, I lamented was that I couldn't catch up. I couldn't keep up with any of the language, and I couldn't keep up with even the um, even the subtitles. They were going so fast, so that, that had to be an advantage. <laughs> I, uh, he would have had to stop many times for me. Uh, I'll uh, confess to our listeners, too, that uh, this show will make heavy use of your book, The Cuban Drumbeat, which is part of the Seagull, Seagull Books series, What Was Communism, edited by Tariq Ali. Uh, it's a, a nice little 
uh, sketch, thumbnail sketch of a lot of history and a lot of interesting things. So I, I, uh, I do hope that uh, we can make good use of it and it, it encourages others to take a look at it. So the book begins with uh, a section called Burden of the Past, and you talk about the special relationship uh, uh, America has or thinks it has with Cuba. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yes. Uh, actually, the quarrel between uh, Cuba and the United States began with Jefferson. When Jefferson uh, acquired Louisiana, the next thing he did was to start dreaming of annexing Cuba mm. because of its strategic location, because of its riches, etc. And the bottom line of this, to make the story quick, is that the United States under uh, Jefferson, Madison, uh, Adams, opposed the independence of Cuba. Mm -hmm. When the United States talk American support for the independence of Spanish America, they usually overlook the case of Cuba because we wanted to take Cuba for ourselves. And on top of it, all the conspiracies you had in Cuba in that earlier period, 1810s, 1820s had a democratic character, meaning they were in favor of the abolition of slavery and racial equality in Cuba. And obviously, an independent Cuba along these democratic lines would never have wanted to be annexed to the United States, which was one of the greatest slave-owning empires in the world. And that's the beginning of the quarrel. And then to move uh, very fast, when you have the War of 1898, what is called the Spanish-American War. <laughs> right. And in reality, it's the Cuban-Spanish-American War. The Cubans had been fighting since 1895. We intervened in theory uh, to give Cuba its independence. In reality, as the Cubans say very correctly, we robbed the Cubans of the independence they were acquiring on the battlefield. Because what we did was, after the defeat of Spain, to impose on Cuba the Platt Amendment, mm -hmm. which gave the United States the right to send troops to Cuba whenever it deemed it necessary, and gave the United States the right to have naval bases in Cuba. Guantanamo today is the fruit of our betrayal of our world in 1898, because we intervened telling the Cubans that we had no ambitions to control Cuba. And we imposed the Platt Amendment on the Cubans. And as a result of the Platt Amendment, the United States got Guantanamo. Mm. So basically, you know, it is, if you think of the American War of Independence, mm -hmm. it is as if Spain, uh, France, after intervening in the war and uh, helping the United States acquire its independence, had told the Americans, of course, now you will give us the right to intervene, send troops to the United States whenever we deem it necessary, and to have a naval base in Long Island. <laughs> right. Well, and the Platt Amendment is 1901, I think. Uh, we skipped over a little bit um, um, uh, Fidel uh, uh, Castro's hero, Jose Marti. Um, do, can you speak a little bit about Marti? Yeah, Marti was in the tradition of Bolivar. Marti overall, like Bolivar, had a positive view of the domestic institutions of the United States, except the racism of American society. But Marti considered, like Bolivar had, the United States a danger for Latin America and for Cuba in particular, because he understood that the United States was an imperialist country. And he understood, he wrote in a letter, if the United States gets into Cuba, we, how will we get it out? And in the last letter he wrote before being killed on the battlefield in May 1895, he said, everything I've done, everything I will do is to uh, save Cuba from the brutal North that wants to dominate it. Mm. I know its entrails. I had lived in the United States, right. and I know how dangerous it is. Fortunately for the United States, for the government of the United States, Marti was killed on the battlefield. Because if Marti had been alive, he would have done everything he could to prevent the United States from intervening in the war in 1898. Because Marti understood the United States was more dangerous than Spain because the Cubans could get rid of Spain. But to get rid of the United States would be much more difficult. Mm. So uh, I think at some point you, you know 
note that uh, there's a sense that Americans don't understand the Cuba that uh, doesn't like America. This, this Cuba you're talking about, the Cuba of Jose, uh, Jose Marti and his understanding of America, and I think you quote Nancy Mitchell, another scholar, scholar of the Carter administration, I think, uh, say, we, uh, we, the U.S., share a past with Cuba, but no shared memories. Yes, absolutely. And you have it uh, in the interpretation, for instance, of 1898. From the American perspective, in 1898, we intervened to give the Cubans their freedom. And uh, Eisenhower, for instance, in a press conference in 1959, he could not understand Cuban nationalists because he said, this is a country in terms of our past. They should be one of our closest friends because... We intervene to give them their freedom. Whereas the attitude of Cuban nationalism, before Fidel Castro, it has nothing to do with Fidel Castro. It is not. The United States was the enemy of our independence, and 1898 is a clear example of this. Cuba was a de facto a legal protectorate of the United States until the Platt Amendment was abrogated in 1934. But when FDR abrogated the Platt Amendment, imposed on the Cubans a treaty, they gave the United States perpetual rights over Guantanamo. So, uh, in the book, you, you skip ahead to the Bay of Pigs, but if you could uh, a little bit uh, talk about Batista, if you, if you have a chance uh, to, to express that sort of 30-year period or 25-year period of, of uh, uh, I guess, the uh, Cuba as uh, America's playground. Yeah, in 1933, you have the first nationalist government in Cuba. Grau San Martin. It's a government uh, supported by students, by progressive elements in Cuban society. It's a nationalist government. Mm -hmm. It's a government that unilaterally abrogates the Platt Amendment. Now, there is uh, a myth, uh, which isn't completely true, of FDR as the great friend of non-intervention in Latin America, the principle of non-intervention. In reality, FDR maintained as the last resort the possibility of invading Cuba to bring down the Grau government because mm. it was a nationalist government, etc., etc. But we found an easier way, and the easier way was to tell the Cuban army to urge the Cuban army to overthrow the government of Grau San Martin. And the commander of the Cuban army was Batista. And after Batista had overthrown the government of Grau San Martin, first he ruled Cuba through puppet presidents. And eventually, it's a long story, but in 1952, he seized power with the coup d'etat, and he remained power until thrown out by Fidel in January 1959. And we had very close relations with the government of Batista, which is normal because he was a client of the United States, and he fostered the interest of the United States. Yeah, uh, it's a, a fascinating story. Uh, I, I had read the uh, a book about uh, that period uh, in terms of gangsterism as well. So uh, it's uh, we skipped over it. We skipped over it here. It's okay. And uh, I ask you one thing: a lot of Americans will go to Havana. Right. Who thinks that if they did that in the United States, they will go to jail for? <laughs> that's right. Right. Thanks. Minors, etc. The worst things. Yes, yes, yes. And it, it's it's the kind of Cuba that lives in the imagination, right? It's it's still mm -hmm. the Cuba a lot of people imagine wanting to still exist or wishing that that Cuba was the Cuba that that remained. Uh, let's uh, let's actually take a break right now before we move ahead in 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 the book. Uh, uh, our music will be Rumba Zatukain by David Zay. This is a typical Angolan rumba shaped by Latin American and Cuban rhythms. More on the Cuban drumbeat of foreign intervention with Piero Gleesis when Interchange returns on WFHB. Support for WFHB comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976. 
serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening, featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe is located in downtown Bloomington. More information is available online at the-uptown.com. Support for Interchange comes from listeners like you and Smithville Fiber, a local provider of internet voice and TV service. Now also offering home automation and security systems for homes and offices throughout South Central Indiana. More information on Smithville's home automation service is available at smithvillesecurity.com. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Cuba in Africa. My guest is Piero Glaces. Uh, uh, Piero Glaces is a professor of American foreign policy in the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he is also the author of Conflicting Missions, Havana, Washington, and Africa, 1959 to 1976, and Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, and Pretoria, and the Struggle for South Africa, 17, excuse me, 1976 to 1991, both of those published by University of North Carolina Press. And we'll get to South Africa down the road. We've got a little bit to go there before we get there. But um, first, let's talk about the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, uh, Piero. Uh, this is, um, this is that, well, I guess we, let's not skip the Bay of Pigs. So we have the Bay of Pigs. Uh, this comes from the uh, Kennedy administration. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, basically, you have a series of U.S. covert operations trying to overthrow Fidel Castro. And the Bay of Pigs is the most important of these covert operations. Uh, there are several things that are interesting with the, about the Bay of Pigs. One, you have a continuity in U.S. operations in the region to overthrow governments. You have the overthrow of the government of Guatemala in '54. You have the attempts to overthrow Fidel uh, in the 1960s. You have the, the U.S. war against the Sandinista government of Nicaragua in the 1980s. In all these uh, crises, in all these situations, we chose the leaders of the native force. Mm. We were intervening to reestablish their control, our control. So we were not going to let the natives choose their own leaders. And the first condition was that they be loyal to the United States, pliant to the United States. Right. The counterpart of this is that the people, uh, the exiles who fought against the Arbenz government in 54 in Guatemala, and the, the anti-Castro rebels in the 1960s, and the contrast contra- against the Sandinista in the 1980s, uh, they were convinced that they would win because the United States was behind them. Mm. So, for instance, in the case of the Bay of Pigs, not only we chose the leaders of the operations, but the leaders of the, the military leaders of the operation only learned about the plans of the operation when the ships were approaching the Bay of Pigs. Hmm. But they did not need to know the plans. Their idea is, if the United States is involved, the United States will triumph by definition. Hmm. After the failure of the operation, when there was an investigation committee, commission chaired uh, by senior US official Maxwell Taylor, many CIA paramilitary officers who were training these Cuban exiles said that the Cuban exiles would tell them the Cuban army will not fight. The Cubans do not fight against people supported by the United States. Mm. And the great surprise was that the Cubans fought. Now, the problem when you have this mentality, banana mentality, we are going to win because the United States is behind us, is that when the going gets tough, these exiles don't fight very well. Uh, 
And that's what happens at the Bay of Pigs. At the Bay of Pigs, very few exiles were killed. They surrendered en masse the third day of the operation. Mm. Another point to make about this is the following. We had created a Cuban exile air force flying from Nicaragua. Mm against the Bay of Pigs. But very soon it was clear that the Cuban pilots, the Castro pilots, had air superiority. And the Cuban exile pilots refused to fly, to fly over the Bay of Pigs. Mm. And those who did fly were Americans from the National Guard of Alabama who were there to instruct the Cuban exiles, but they were so committed to the operation that when the Cuban pilots, exile pilots, refused to fly the second day because it was dangerous, they did fly. And this was the first time that napalm was used in the United States. Oh, napalm, okay. Because it was used by American pilots mm. against the defenders of the Bay of Pigs, not even by Cuban exile pilots, by American pilots. Mm. And the operation ended in a great Cuban victory. Wow. So uh, that's, of course, a piece of history probably not too many people are aware of, uh, napalm used on Cubans, yeah. yeah? Okay. And that's from official U.S. documents, mm -hmm. by the way. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, so then there, uh, there's a, a brief, uh, I think you say a brief honeymoon uh, between Cuba and Moscow at this point. Yeah, I mean, uh, in 1960, uh, the Cubans are very happy the help they're receiving from the Soviet Union. The Soviets are very happy with the Cubans. Uh, they are very impressed by the Cuban victory at the Bay of Pigs. Uh, Fidel Castro is working well with the Communist Party. It's a close relationship and it's getting increasingly closer. Uh, and then there is uh, the missile crisis. Mm -hmm. And what happens with the missile crisis is in a way, from a Cuban perspective, a repetition of 1898. Mm. In 1898, at the end of the war, Americans and Spaniards negotiated in Paris the peace treaty, and the Cubans were excluded. In, in uh, October 1962, Khrushchev negotiates with Kennedy to solve the crisis without involving the Cubans. The Cubans are excluded. And the Cubans are very aware of this historical parallel. It's the second time that we are excluded. Now, uh, there are, it is interesting because there is a post-mortem of the crisis by the intelligence and research of the State Department, which is very well done. And in the early 1990s, you have a series of conferences in which American uh, officials, Soviet officials participated using documents that were declassified. Mm. And uh, the conclusion was the same in 63 as well as in the early 90s. In 63, the director of intelligence and research of the State Department wrote, well, it is clear that the Cubans and the Soviets fear that there would be another an American invasion against Cuba in 1962. And this is what motivated the decision to have the missiles in Cuba. Oh. In 1992, uh, McNamara, the former Secretary of Defense of uh, uh, Kennedy, at the end of one of these conferences, concluded saying, I must say in all fairness that if I were had been a Cuban official in 1962, and if I'd been a Soviet official in 1962, I would have concluded the United States was preparing an invasion of Cuba. Why I'm saying this, the reason I'm saying this, and you know, there were a lot of paramilitary operations of the United States against Cuba, etc. If ever a country was justified to have missiles on its soil was not Western Germany, was not Italy, it was Cuba. Because Cuba was the object of the reckless policy of John Kennedy, a series of paramilitary operations attempted to blow up economic objectives in Cuba, etc., etc. Right. So, it, from the Cuban point of view, it was completely justified. Well, it's uh, you. You mentioned the reckless policy of uh, Kennedy. It's uh, uh, policies that have remained with us, uh, and have. Uh, I think at some point in the book, you quote uh, Fidel as calling you know these things uh, these immoral this immoral embargo. 
Um, it's one of the things that I think just we stop thinking about when when you imagine uh, placing trade embargoes and economic embargoes on countries and, and basically work to, to starve a population. Including the sale of medicine. Right, right. To save, to save the life of people. Well, so uh, what what happened? How did the, um, I guess, uh, you mentioned the the negotiation about the, the, the missiles between the Soviets, uh, Khrushchev and Kennedy, and not taking uh, Castro and Cuba into account. Was that pretty much when, when I guess, the, the party was over for Moscow? I mean, they would continue to support. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, that's when, the, first of all, uh, the Cubans came to a conclusion. That they could only trust the Soviet Union up to a point, mm-hmm. and that if the United States attacked, they would have to rely only on their own strength. Mm. That when they realized that the Soviet shield was very weak, and this remains something of the Cubans would be aware throughout the Cold War, mm. and they would be aware of it in a very critical moment under Reagan. Uh, so that obviously affected the the honeymoon very much, plus this fact again that uh, they were painfully aware that Khrushchev had negotiated with uh, Kennedy over their head. Mm -hmm. The CIA pointed out that the missile crisis strengthened the prestige of Fidel Castro in Cuba. Although it was a defeat for the Cubans and the Soviet Union, they had to withdraw the missiles. Why was it that it increased the prestige of Fidel Castro? Because, and I'm paraphrasing now from the CIA, because the so-called client of the Soviet Union openly criticized the Soviet Union. Fidel mm-hmm. Castro openly criticized Khrushchev for negotiating with the United States. Castro refused to accept the conditions agreed between Khrushchev and Kennedy, which was there would be an inspection by the United Nations of the dismantling of the missile systems in Cuba and shipping them back. Fidel Castro said, forget it, he didn't allow the UN to come or anything. And in the streets of Havana, there was a song that the Cubans were singing, a mass, and the song was in Spanish, and then I will translate, uh, Nikita Mariquita, lo que se da no se quita, Nikita, you little fairy, you don't take away what you gave <laughs> in the missiles. And obviously, this would never happen in Bulgaria or in a client of the Soviet Union. Right. And he honestly acknowledged this, essentially. The crisis in no way affected the prestige of Fidel Castro without Cuba. Yeah, it grew, grew larger, it would seem, yes? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, well, let's take uh, another break. This is Doug Storm on Interchange. Our music for this break is Volta Camarada by Matadidi. We'll continue with the worldview and foreign policy of Fidel Castro, and we'll get to Africa, which, uh, which we need to do, with our guest Piero Iglesias when Interchange returns on WFHB. This is listener-supported WFHB, Bloomington, Bedford, Ellettsville, Nashville. Community Radio for South Central Indiana, online at WFHB.org. It is 6 o'clock on the dot, and the current temperature is 59 degrees. Tonight, a low of 47 expected over cloudy skies with just a scant 20% chance of precipitation. Tomorrow, warmer temperatures, a high of 65 degrees, starting off Sunday uh, with a chance of rain growing 60% chance of precipitation overnight with a low of 52 degrees. Thursday, even warmer, 69 degrees for the high, 56 degrees for the low, 80% chance of rain both during the day and evening hours.
Welcome back to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. Today's show is Cuba and Africa. We haven't gotten Africa yet, but we'll get there this time. Uh, my guest is Piero Glaeses. He is the uh, professor, a professor of American foreign policy in the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University. He's the author of two very large, well-researched uh, books on uh what what he, I guess this is the uh, uh, passion and 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 uh, mission of Fidel Castro's Cuba and foreign policy. One is called Conflicting Missions: Havana, Washington, and Africa, 1959 to 1976, and its sequel, Visions of Freedom: Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and the Struggle for Southern Africa, 1976-1991. So we we made it through the missile crisis, and we're going to head into to Africa. One of the points you make in the book is that Africa was an easier foreign policy maneuver, as opposed to Latin America? Yes, because Latin America was the backyard of the United States. The United States was extre- were extremely sensitive, and was, there was a danger for Cuba. And to give you an example, in 1966-67, there is a rumor that there are two Cubans in Guatemala with the guerrillas. Mm. And all the U.S. government is extremely agitated. The Cuban was considered a very dangerous animal when it came to Latin America. Mm. Africa, the United States, were not very concerned about the Cubans. They couldn't imagine that the Cubans could have an impact in Africa. And this gave the Cubans much more freedom of maneuver. Uh, Through the 1960s, if you think the number of Cubans who went to fight uh, in Latin America in the decade of the 1960s, is uh, less than 40, probably 35. Mm. If you're talking of Africa in the 1960s, you're well over 1,000. Mm-hmm. And this is before the, uh, I guess, the extreme push with Angola. So, before what, Angola. Yeah, what's, what's going on in the 60s? What's going on in Africa that Cuba is involved in? Well, in Africa in the 1960s, you have wars of independence. Mm-hmm. You have the war. Of, well, you start with the Algerian War of Independence. Mm-hmm. And that is the first contact, the first help that Cuba gave to Africa. And it's interesting. We are talking of December 1961. The Algerian War of Independence is still going on. And you have a Cuban ship by Yerenipe that docks at Casablanca Mm. in Morocco. Morocco was a rear guard base of the rebels. And in this one ship, you have the dual mission of Cuba and Africa. The ship arrives with weapons for the Algerian fighters. That's the military dimension of Cuban assistance. And the ship returns uh, to Havana with a precious cargo, Algerian uh, fighters wounded and Algerian war orphans who will go to Cuba to to study, to recover from the traumas of the war, etc. So one ship gives you the two dimensions. And at the same time, it gives you the generosity of Cuban policy. Because at that time, Cuba had relatively good relations with France, the France of Charles de Gaulle. Uh, if nothing else, de Gaulle liked the idea 
of annoying the United States. <laughs> right. And by uh, intervening uh, on behalf of the Algerian rebels, if the French discovered it, the military dimension, this would affect the relationship with France. And then still Algeria, you have a second moment. Algeria becomes independent in, uh, in 1962. And in May 1963, you have a Cuban medical mission that goes to, Angola, to Algeria. Uh, you know, it's a situation in which Cuba lacks doctors. There were in Cuba, when Batista fell, 6,000 doctors. By 1963, there were only 3,000 doctors left. Mm because many had left Cuba. And this is a medical mission of 55 medical personnel, half of whom are doctors, and one third of whom are women. And this is, of course, free of charge. As uh, the person who was then the Minister of of Health of Cuba told me, it was like a beggar helping another beggar. Right. But the Algerians deserved it, and they needed more than us. Yes, well, these are, these are great things to point out. Uh, I wanted to stress this, too, because you made this point, uh, and you make this point throughout, the, the, du- the dual purpose, in a sense, right? This is the point you make throughout the book. Yeah, this is what Cuba this does. Yeah, important because people in general, and I do the same, when they write about Cuba, they stress the military side mm-hmm. because it's controversial, etc., etc. But the humanitarian side is extremely important. And all these uh, uh, technical assistance missions of Cuba are free of charge. Cuba does not charge. And then you have something else, so again with uh, Algeria, and that is you have the beginning of a border war between Morocco and Algeria in September 1963. And the Cuban rush a force of 686 soldiers to Algeria, and that includes half of the tanks of Cuba. Mm. You know, we're talking of 20 tanks, right. but it's all the tanks Cuba had. And the Algerians had no tanks at the time, so it was significant. And uh, they do it, even though this means jeopardizing a contract with Morocco, because Morocco was going to buy a huge amount of Cuban sugar for $104 million, which was a lot of money at the time the United States was trying to cripple the Cuban economy. But again, uh, the idealism uh, at the upper end of a real politics, the Cubans felt a very strong kinship with the Algerians. They felt the similarity between Cuba and Algerians. And let me say something, if I can make a little digression, which is interesting. Uh, In in, uh, September 1962, Ben Bella, Prime Minister of Algeria, goes to the United States because Algeria is going to become a member of the United Nations. And after New York, he's received at the White House by Kennedy. Uh, a good reception, Kennedy promises in general terms economic aid. But there is a problem, now we are in October. From Washington, Ben Bella goes to New York, and from New York he flies to Cuba, mm-hmm. he visits Cuba. And uh, Kennedy can't understand this, and his advisors and the American press, is it an example of the rationality of third world leaders? How can Ben Bella do something? He has been just received by Kennedy at the White House. What's wrong with these third world people? And they don't understand something. Only one American newspaper points it out, the Christian Science Monitor, mm. that Algeria, Ben Bella, is a debt towards Cuba. Uh, that the aid Cuba gave in 1961. And while the military aid is secret, humanitarian aid is not secret. And when Bembela arrives at the airport in Havana, the children, the Algerian children are there at the airport to receive him. But the hubris of the United States, the ethnocentrism of the United States, prevents them to understand that Bembela is doing his duty. He is responding to the generosity of Cuba. 
And they only see these as you know, friends to the United States, etc., etc. Right. And this is a problem. We are digressing a second from Cuba, but it's so characteristic of American foreign policy: the imperial hubris, ethnocentrism, etc., etc. Right. Well, this is good. this is an important point. Again, you, you uh, and and this will show up again later when uh, when sanctions are are, um, are offered to be lifted if if Cuba would leave uh, leave Africa. And this was uh, the point uh, of the real politic, which you said. Uh, instead, they jeopardized the $184 million Cuba uh, uh, sugar deal with uh, with Morocco, uh, which goes through, though, I believe, right? They, they end up selling yes, the sugar anyway. Morocco realized that they cannot find any sugar. <laughs> it's the cheapest sugar they could get, right, right. Right. To find another uh, <laughs> right. buyer, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but it doesn't work, and right. so Morocco decides to hell right. we're going to buy the Cuban sugar. But the Cubans took a very serious risk. Yeah, that's that's an important point. Is and again, you make it throughout that they they make that idealistic decision uh, to stick with their principles. One thing you you point you point out this is uh, the sense that this is a non-white, poor, threatened, uh, um, threatened by a powerful enemy culturally, both Latin American and African uh, socialist countries with a, a third world sensibility. You write so there's a sense of of this uh, camaraderie too, or the solidarity with other with countries that are very similar to them, privileged versus un- underprivileged you say humanity yes. versus imperial Im- versus imperialism and developed versus underdeveloped as well so uh, these are castro's perspectives on on the world uh, this is his worldview as you say yes internationalism is at the core of the cuban revolution right and so we we need we need to turn to angola um, and you, you mentioned, uh, I guess we start with the collapse of the Portuguese dictatorship in uh, 1974. Yes. Uh, in 1974, until 1974, Southern Africa had been a backwater of the Cold War. Uh, the guerrillas were fighting against the Portuguese in Angola and Mozambique, in Rhodesia against the white minority regime, in Namibia against South African colonial rule, and uh, in South Africa against apartheid seemed impotent. And the stage was dominated by the friends of Washington, authoritarian Portugal, and apartheid South Africa. And then uh, the Portuguese dictatorship is overthrown and things start moving. And uh, there is decolonization and Angola and Mozambique are scheduled for independence. Mm. In Mozambique, you had only one liberation movement. So it was pretty simple, would inherit power. But in Angola, you had three independence movements. Mm. And so that gave room for maneuver. And uh, Angola is scheduled for independence in November 1975. The Portuguese established a transitional government in January 75, which would include the three independence movements. Uh, but civil war begins, it's inevitable, because they had some uh, very different views, very different values, etc. Let's let's take a brief minute and think about, uh, and, uh, maybe help us a little bit with that uh, aspect of the situation. So in Angola, there are three independence parties, three independence factions that are trying to vie for uh, being in charge, I, I guess, of Angola? Yeah, and they're very different. Uh, you have uh, uh, one of them will be very important in the 1980s, so it, it has to be really mentioned and stressed, and that's unit of Jonas Sabimbi. It's a very small movement, and uh, it's a liberation movement between position marks because the declassified Portuguese documents make very clear that in 1972, Sabimbi began cooperating with the Portuguese against the MPLA of Agostino Neto. They were operating in the same area in the southeast of Angola. Uh, Savimbi was not a puppet of the Portuguese. Savimbi was a guy without any principle. What he wanted to do was to eliminate the MPLA by cooperating with the Portuguese, and then eventually, you know, he walked to, to take power. Mm-hmm. It was a very small group. Then there was another group, which was the FNLA, which was really based on one ethnic group, the Bakongo, and uh, it was led by leaders who were extremely corrupt and unprincipled. Let me have a shortcut. 
I interviewed both the head of the CIA station in Luanda, Hans Lander, who in 19, was the head of the CIA station in 1975, and the most senior State Department official in 1975, the Consul General Kiloran. And they both said the same thing. Uh, the FNLA of Olden Roberto was extremely corrupt and nothing else. Savimbi was a gangster, and the only serious movement was the MPLA. The MPLA was also based on a, a, an ethnic group, but because they were Marxist, they had an approach which was a class approach, mm-hmm. and they saw pro- things not in terms of ethnic group, white, uh, black, etc., but in terms of class and an oppressed people. Mm-hmm. And they were open to whites, they were open to mulattos, and they enjoyed the support of groups from other uh, ethnic, uh, gr- people from other ethnic groups. It was the only movement that had a view of Angola as a country. Mm-hmm. Well, we and need to, Pierre, we need to take a break uh, at this point. We'll, co- we'll come back to the MPLA when, uh, when we come back. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our music for the break is So Angolano by Dom Cateno. Cateno is one of many who attended university in Cuba, traveling there in 1977. More on Fidel Castro's revolutionary zeal with Piero Glaeses when Interchange returns on WFHB. <laughs> Perdi a moça, só bater a suave, verás então que parece normal a cor. E quando começa o corridinho, a desplaçar no mais certo dos compassos. Support for WFHB comes from Blue Magazine. The editors of Blue Magazine believe local businesses are endangered by online shopping and they encourage you to shop locally. More information is available at magbloom.com. Support for WFHB also comes from the Uptown Cafe, a Bloomington landmark since 1976. Serving Cajun Creole and home cooking specials every Tuesday and Wednesday evening, also featuring a full bar serving fresh handcrafted cocktails. The Uptown Cafe, located in downtown Bloomington. More information available online at the-uptown.com. This is Doug Storm. Welcome back to Interchange. I'm speaking today with Piero Gliasis. He's the uh, professor of American foreign policy in the School of Advanced International Studies at Johns Hopkins University and author of Conflicting Missions, Havana, Washington, and Africa, and Visions of Freedom, Havana, Washington, Pretoria, and the Struggle for Southern Africa. Those are two large books, investigative books on uh, Fidel Castro's uh, foreign policy, the U.S. foreign policy, foreign policy in South Africa as well. There's a lot in there. Uh, we're, we're racing through this today. Uh, I'm sorry to do it, but, uh, but we have to, I guess, at this point. We've got about 12 minutes left. So why make the decision to help Angola? Why does yes. Castro decide to help Angola? Uh, look, what you have is independence is scheduled for November 11, 1975. By September, the United States and South Africa, who are involved both in a covert operation in Angola, giving weapons to the movements they support, come to the conclusion that the MPLA is winning the civil war mm-hmm. against the other two movements that are their protege. And the decision is that the South African army enters Angola, mm-hmm. invades Angola on October 14. Where the MPLA has been winning the civil war. 
when the South Africans invade, it's a modern army with modern weapons, tanks and everything, and the MPLA resistance collapses. And the South Africans are advancing along the coastal road which is paved to Luanda, getting closer and closer and cutting like a knife to butter. And that's when Fidel Castro, responding to the desperate appeals of the MPLA, decides to intervene to send troops. Why does he, and, and he decides without consulting the Soviet Union, because he knows that the Soviet Union is opposed. If we have time, we can say why the Soviet Union is opposed. Uh, why does he decide? It's really a moment. If Fidel Castro had been following the narrow real politic interest of Cuba, he would not have sent troops. Mm -hmm. The United States at Kissinger's initiative was involved in secret negotiations with the Cubans to establish diplomatic relations. Mm. Obviously, if you send troops to Angola, that's the end of it. Right. Uh, Cuba was beginning to receive aid from West European countries. The vice president of Cuba went to England, France, received important lines of credit in the spring of 75, West Germany promised a development loan of $15 million, etc., etc. Obviously, if you send troops to Africa, you torpedo this. And there is a huge danger that South Africa may escalate and crush the Cuban troops. Logistically, to send troops to Africa, to Angola, is a nightmare. And you're not assured of any support of the Soviet Union. You're intervening against the wishes of the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. So the question is, why did Fidel Castro decide to do it? And the best answer is provided by Henry Kissinger in the last volume of his memoirs. Henry Kissinger in 1975 cried from every roof that Cuba was intervening as a proxy of the Soviet Union. In the third volume of his memoirs, he does a, one of his very rare moments of self-criticism. He says, I was wrong. It is the Cubans who confronted the Soviets to the fait accompli. And then he tries to answer the question, why did Fidel Castro do it? And this reply, I'm quoting Kissinger, is Fidel Castro was arguably the most genuine revolutionary leader then in power. Mm -hmm. This is Kissinger speaking. And there I think he's completely right. First of all, already the CIA in 1981 had come to this conclusion. The intervention was a unilateral Cuban decision taken at great haste. And the reason I think Fidel decided to intervene with all these risks, with all these threats, is because he understood that what was going on in Angola was the struggle against apartheid. Mm -hmm. That a victory of the axis of evil, Washington, Pretoria, would have tightened the grip of apartheid over Southern Africa. And the commitment of Fidel, of the Cuban leadership, and I think of the great majority of the Cuban people for the struggle against apartheid was very strong. Mm -hmm. Fidel called it la causa mas bonita de la humanidad, the most beautiful cause of mankind. Mm -hmm. And this is what triggered the Cuban decision. The Soviet Union was opposed for two reasons. One, the most important, was because Brezhnev was obsessed with the taunt. There is this cliche in the United States, the United States in favor of the taunt, the nasty Soviets against the taunt. Uh, in 1975, and then paraphrasing the director of Central Intelligence, Colby, uh, Brezhnev was obsessed with the idea of bringing the SALT II Treaty to the Congress of the Communist Party in February 1976. And obviously, Cuban intervention would go against this. And Soviet relations with the MPLA were not close. Mm. So, you know, you know, and for the first two and a half months, until mid-January 1976, Cuba sent its troops with using its all old planes and its old ships without any logistical assistance from the Soviet Union. Mm. And because the Soviets were upset with the Cubans. So this is what the Cubans did. And uh, between November 75 and April 76, they sent 36,000 
soldiers to Angola. The reason they sent to me so many soldiers is because they did not know what South Africa would do. Yeah. Would South Africa escalate, send more troops? The South Africans had uh, the logistical advantage. So Fidel wanted to be ready for whatever might happen. Mm. So we have to point out that the that it's it's a clear co- uh, collusion or a, a clear, um, um, as you say before, an axis of evil between Washington and Pretoria to to expand South African reach uh, to or to sort of quash independence uh, in other regions. Yeah, I mean, South Africa intervened in Angola for reasons that one can understand, to defend apartheid. Mm-hmm. Because the MPLA, Agostino Neto, were on record to say, they said it everywhere, which was a little silly, I think, <laughs> that for them the struggle would not end in Luanda. The struggle would end in Cape Town mm. with the liberation of South Africa. Right. So it made sense from the point of view of South Africa right. to try to crush the MPLA. Sure. The other two movements were offering their friendship. In the case of the United States, uh, it's really interesting because Kissinger creates a task force in May 1975 to advise what should be done in Angola. Uh, a covert operation, uh, non-intervention in this civil war, etc. And the conclusion of the task force, chaired by the Assistant Secretary for Africa, was we should not get involved. Mm. We can very well live with the victory of the MPLA. This was the view of the Department of Defense, this was the view of the State Department, of Treasury, etc., etc. And Kissinger essentially overruled them. Mm. And I think the reason he overruled them was because he was looking for a cheap victory to compensate for the defeat in Vietnam. In Vietnam yeah. Let's let's jump real quick. If we don't have a lot of time, Piero, but uh, I do want to. Uh, go ahead and, and push as quickly as possible into the idea of uh, the internationalism we talked about before. The duty to help others is the primary uh, mission here. Uh, that, but also to try to understand the humanitarianism that is part of this and uh, uh, that goes along with the military, as you said. But the the effect that it had on Cuba as well. What was it like uh, for Cubans to go to Angola and fight and have to have that happen in their lives as well? Uh, Fidel Castro explained it very well in a conversation with Agostino Neto, the president of Angola in 1979. And he said, you know, I really hope uh, you will have a, create a strong army as quickly as possible and that we can leave Angola. Because besides the cost, economic cost for us, uh, there is the humanitarian cost. And this is sending soldiers to Angola for two years to be away from their families. And the cost for their families to be away from, you know, the soldier who went to Angola stayed in Angola for two years. Right. Back to Cuba for the vacation, or etc., etc. So there was a very strong cost. And Fidel said another thing: you have to keep into account to to NATO that at a critical moment, a people can make a great sacrifice, but it cannot be repeated for too long, for too long, because people get tired. And you have in Cuba, in reality, is at the moment of the fighting against apartheid, the South African Army in 75, 76. There is a great enthusiasm. Actually, there was even enthusiasm about Cubans in Miami, mm. a feeling of pride in his former colony of the United States. Well, uh, Piero, I know, I know it's not the end of the story, but it is the end of our time here. I apologize that we had to cut it off. Um, um, important to to note that uh, that Cuba uh, is as much a humanitarian aid, uh, uh, giving humanitarian aid to to other countries, doctors, as you say, educating so many people as well, bringing people over to Cuba as well at the all at their expense all at cuban expense so uh that's our show thanks to piero glaesis for joining us today via skype from the uh johns hopkins campus or from uh, uh from dc and a special thanks to marissa mormon for choosing our music for this program thank you for joining me piero glaesis my pleasure we'll close the show with sembra praluanda by paulo flores from 2016 one of the early lines in this uh in this song is it was in cuando cubango quito cuanavale that we wrote world history in the end. It shows that history remains important in the memories of those born around the time of independence. Uh, Paula Flores was born in 1972. 
Next time on Interchange, a special show and a unique opportunity for our local listeners. This will be a 90-minute program featuring an interview with Thomas Frank, author of the best-selling What's the Matter with Kansas, and most recently, Listen Liberal, or Whatever Happened to the Party of the People, and a second installment of our series with Rasul Mowat on the sounds of resistance, this time on songs that critique the action of politics as often promoting a status quo in action. That's the special part. What's unique is we're having a listening party at Farm Bloomington as part of our spring fun drive. Stand with WFHB. It's an eat and give event beginning at 5 p.m. and lasting till 8 p.m. It's $20 a plate, 10 of which goes to support WFHB and Interchange. This requires RSVP by Tuesday morning, 4-4, uh, to get your, um, your meal chosen. The invitation is on the Interchange page at wfhb.org slash news slash interchange and there's an event page set up on Facebook. Come join us for good food and good friends and come meet the Interchange crew and probably many past Interchange guests. Come stand with WFHB and Interchange April 4 at Farm Bloomington from 5 to 8 p.m. and listen to our special 90-minute program. Thanks for listening. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Rob Schoon is assistant producer. Jen Brooks is board engineer. Executive producer is Joe Crawford. Stay tuned for Counterspin, followed by the Jazz Menagerie, coming up next on your community radio station, WFHB. Now more necessary than ever.